This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Ready, set, save, California. It's sellathon time this Labor Day at your California Ford dealer. Get ready for the best offers of the summer on the 2019 Ford lineup, like an adventure-ready Explorer or the all-new built Ford Tough Ranger. Or get behind the wheel of the 2019 Ford F-150 with the power, toughness, and capability to carry any payload. You've waited all summer for these deals, and the wait is over. So ready, set, save. The Labor Day sellathon is on now, but don't wait. These deals won't last. Hurry into your California Ford dealer before it all ends September third you are listening to on the daily the rotoviz daily fantasy sports podcast powered by rotoviz radio hey everyone i'm matt freeman matt at the oracle of fantasy labs and rotoviz welcome to the february 20th 2018 nascar edition of on the daily i'm joined by dr nick giffen an owner of rotoviz a phd in mathematics a three-time qualifier for the DraftKings nascar main event and one of the best nascar dfs players in the world you can follow him on twitter at rotodoc nick how's it going hey matt i am doing great um pretty excited to be doing this new show here and uh, a little bit new format i guess in terms of our uh weekly nascar coverage as far as the pod goes yeah it's a midweek show and uh we were talking about it over the weekend and we decided that uh, from here on we are going to be doing two shows per week uh so talk a little bit about the format for what they call you the grill master you've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop and as you lift that first forkful to your mouth you savor the moment Get amazing offers during the Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, like the 2019 C-Class Sedan and GLC SUV, the perfect recipes of driving performance. Plus, you can enjoy six months of Sirius XM All Access included. The Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, now serving limited-time offers on a select lineup of vehicles. Offers end September 3rd. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing. What you were thinking in terms of uh, the show earlier in the week and then the show, the regular show that we do on Friday nights. Yeah, so as far as the shows go, um, we're going to have kind of a midweek show where we look back at the previous race, maybe uh, learn a couple of DFS lessons from the previous race, talk about the winning lineup from the uh, the top GPPs there. Uh, but also, um, not just only on a look back, but we want to look ahead to the coming week's race. So this weekend, of course, the coming weekend's race will be at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Normally, when we do the one pod per week, we kind of kick off the show with with these things, the look back, a really quick look back, and then looking ahead to Atlanta, and we start with a preview of what the track is like, and, and we talk a little bit about, like, what things you should look for at Atlanta. Well, we're going to do that midweek so that later in the week we can really get you know, kind of more laser focused on driver picks, uh, the model, things like that, uh, so that, you know, it's a little more streamlined. Uh, and also it just means there's more coverage for you guys just because um, it's going to it's gonna be really, really exciting to to do two pods, one where we kind of get a look back, lessons learned, and then another one where once we've got qualifying in the books, we can give some picks. We can reference the first pod from earlier in the week with the different stats and things like that and really dive into more drivers than just giving like, 
one or two picks for cash games and a couple picks for GPPs. We can really get a lot more driver focused on the on the later pod and after qualifying. Yeah, and then on top of that, uh, there's also there's also going to be a uh, NASCAR betting piece that you're going to be doing at uh, the Action Network, and uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. So, um, you know, it's 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 not going to be a, a, a huge or a massive article, but I know a lot of you guys like to uh, occasionally throw a bet down on NASCAR. Uh, and we've got a very, you know, obviously gambling oriented audience if we do a lot of DFS here. And so what we're going to do in that article uh, is we're going to look at a few drivers that I think have really good odds. And we're going to reference a lot of the different things I use, like the uh, the model that I create every week. We can look at the sim scores to figure out upside range, to figure out which drivers have a lot more upside than the betting market suggests might actually have. Uh, so it's going to be a pretty cool article. It's not going to be too long, like I said, um, 500, 800 words where we just dive through a few different drivers that we think have a better chance to win. Uh, we might even be able to get into a couple of the prop bets if they're posted in time, but uh, they may or may not be posted in time for a Sunday morning article. So these articles are going to run, as we think right now, probably Sunday morning. All right. Awesome. Uh, okay. Given that this is the first midweek show and we're going to take a look back Let's start to take a look back at Daytona 500. Uh, what a race. I mean, as expected, multiple crashes. Uh, there was also some single file racing, and uh, you thought that might happen. Austin Dillon took the win in a very contentious manner, uh, spinning out the leader, Almirola, uh, as he was going into the, the third turn. Uh, you tweeted out before the race uh, that you took Almirola at 60-1 to 1 odds to win. Uh, talk to us about the race and the sweat that you were having there. Yeah, uh, so like you said, um, it was it was a crash-filled race, but then we also had a very long period of green flag racing where they were single file, and I talked about how that could possibly happen given the handling of the cars and how it would be more of an issue this year than in the past. Uh, so we did see that single file line form for quite a while, and that allowed something unusual to happen. Ryan Blaney dominated the race. We had like a true dominator, race dominator in Ryan Blaney. Um, you know, I think it was the first time since 2005 that a driver led over 100 laps at Daytona. And that last time that happened, like I said, it was 2005, was Tony Stewart. And then the time before that was 1998 with Dale Earnhardt Sr. So in the race that he he famously won his only Daytona 500 win. So very, very unusual to have a driver lead over 100 laps. Blaney led 118 laps, uh, and he ended up finishing seventh. So because he dominated so much and still finished pretty highly, he did come away with 65 DraftKings points, um, which was enough to put him in the winning lineup. And we'll talk about the winning lineup in a second. So a little bit of unusualness there. As far as the... The sweat goes and what I had with Almirola, pretty interesting as well. Um, there were a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of crashes, some of them very early, and it took out most of the chalk in the back. Uh, Brad Keselowski out of the race with the crash. He started 31st. William Byron involved in multiple incidences. Uh, even though he kept on continuing throughout the race, he finished, I think, multiple laps down. Um Jimmy Johnson taken out of the race in an early race crash. Uh, also started back there in the back in 35th. Uh, we had, let's see, who are the other drivers? Oh, Kyle Larson ended up multiple laps down due to getting involved in some of the incidents. He still ended up finishing 19th, but he finished three laps down. Really only Eric Almirola survived until the very last, like you said, set of turns there going into the last lap. He too got wrecked 
by Austin Dillon in controversial fashion. Uh, and obviously I have a few things to say about it because I did take Almarola at 60 to one odds. You and I talked earlier in the week about, you know, a couple bets that we might like, I think on the, on the daily DFS pod last week, I should say. And, uh, I mentioned, I liked Paul Menard around 40 to one. Um, you had talked about, or we had talked about Almarola, but he was a little too short for me, I think on the other sites and, uh, at my local casino, I found him just before 15 minutes before the race. I found him at 60 to one. Uh, and that's what I like doing. I'm shopping around at different places, um, whether it's online or at the local casinos to find some good odds and ended up having Almarola at 60 to one. And like I said, when we talked, I would have taken Almarola had he been, you know, a little bit longer odds and, and I ended up finding him at longer odds at my local casino. So, uh, the cool thing about that was 60 to one, I thought was a steal. This guy has won a plate race at Daytona before, albeit it was in a rain-shortened race, but he's been in contention to win multiple times before. This is the first time he's ever been in, like, super premium equipment. Not that it has a huge difference at Daytona, but definitely has a difference. Um, to always, it always helps to be on one of the better teams. And uh, he was, in a, more importantly, in a Ford, which seemed to be the dominant manufacturer. So to get him at those odds, I would take that. Every day, all day at 60 to 1 for Almarola, a guy who's shown himself to be a pretty good plate racer. Now, uh, as far as the, the sweat goes, uh, mostly because I had uh, more, well, I should say because the ownership percentages were almost exactly spot on with my model. Oh, they were I perfect. personally, they were, yeah, they, they were, were they were insane. They were insane. Um, for a plate race, it's even more insane because last year, the plate races, I never got above like a 0.5, and this time I got 0.8 R squared. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I thought the ownership percentages for the chalk would be even higher than what the model predicted, right? I thought Brad Keselowski would be 65, 70%, something like that. I thought, uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson would be 55 to 60%. I thought Kyle Larson would be around 60%. So I thought all of that chalk would be even higher owned. So because I thought they'd be higher owned, I went like 50 to 55% thinking I'd be underweight on them. Turns out I was basically equal weight to the field on them. Had I known they were going to be... Uh, that low, <laughs> I probably would have actually gone overweight on them, uh, which ended up working out in my favor because they all ended up crashing out. So I was up and down the whole race. Sometimes I was ahead. Sometimes I was behind. Um, and sometimes there was at one point with uh, right after that last major big one, not the Almarola incident, but the last big one right before the final restart, I was second. So I was sitting there with $50,000 looking pretty. Uh, obviously, that didn't last. And um you know, then we had that final restart. But if Almirola had stayed out in front because he was leading that last lap, I still would have had a nice couple thousand dollar profit plus the profit from my bet on Almirola. I bet $30 to win $1,800 uh, at 60 to 1. So I had a nice several thousand dollar profit instead of losing $2,500 after Dylan spun Almirola. My personal opinion, I thought it wasn't uh, the greatest move there by Dylan, but you know, a lot of the NASCAR drivers and, and even Almarola himself don't seem to be too upset about it. Um, I still think five seconds is an eternity. Almarola got up in front of Ty Dillon or Austin Dillon, I should say, and was in front of him for about five seconds. And that is forever in NASCAR. If we talk about a leader having a five second lead, we'd say he checked out. We'd say he's gone. We'd say he's dominating. Um, and not that Almarola was five seconds ahead, but he was ahead of Dillon for five seconds, which is more than five football fields in terms of length. Um, that he, you know, Dylan had to to make a move around Almarola. There was a bottom lane open. He could have dived underneath him, hoped for some help. Instead, going into turn three, Almarola kind of blocked down low a little bit. Dylan got into his back right corner and spun him into the outside wall. 
but apparently it was okay according to all the drivers and 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 so I guess I end up having to be okay with it but certainly a controversial ending to a great race yeah and you mentioned earlier uh Ryan Blaney and his domination there uh I have to say like in the models he was a guy that uh I think had the second highest projected finishing position uh, so I, I think pretty impressive there uh, for it being a plate race that the model really was uh, pretty on top of everything. Continuing to look back at Daytona, like from the DFS perspective, is there anything that we can take away from it that you think will be applied forward? I mean, I know it, it's so random because it is a restrictor plate race, uh, but anything you think we can take away? Uh, I think the main takeaways from it are, one, we you know, as much as we can look into the past and and say, you know, this is the probability of these things happening, sometimes odd things happen, like Blaney leading 118 laps. Again, that hadn't happened since 2005. So while we may want to give a little extra weight to it next time we come back to Daytona, probably not Talladega since it's a different track and, and handling is less of a premium at Talladega than Daytona. We may, and especially because um, Daytona is going to be a night race where handling improves a little. We may want not to give too much weight to this result uh, of, of Blaney dominating. Uh, I do think, obviously, also as, as Chevy has time to uh, study more about their car, I know there's a little bit different package for, for the restrictor plates, but maybe they learn a few things throughout the season that helps them with the restrictor plate package as well. So I wouldn't overreact to this race as much, but I would give a little extra weight uh, to you know the possibility of a dominator. We, we saw a very unusual winning lineup, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and, but I wouldn't overreact to this race as being something we will see a lot of the time. Because if all those big ones happened that didn't take out the back guys but took out the front starting guys instead, we wouldn't be talking about anything being different other than maybe Blaney still dominating the race. But certainly the safest place to be is out front. And uh, it, it does look like we can give a little extra tiny bit of weight to the possibility of maybe there being a dominator, but don't overreact to that. All right, well, talk about that winning lineup. Uh, it was a $600,000 GPP for Sunday's DraftKings slate. I believe that is the largest uh, NASCAR GPP that we've had. I might be wrong on that, but talk about the winning lineup. It's the largest one I can remember uh, and have looked back at. But, uh, yeah, certainly the winning lineup was unusual. Usually we talk about four-plus drivers starting back in the, if not the 30s, at least the late 20s and back uh, as their starting position. Uh, the last time we had a lineup that didn't have this many drivers starting in the 20s or 30s was all the way back in 2005 as well um, for the Daytona 500, 2005 and 2006, I think it was. So very unusual race, uh, but uh, the winning lineup consisted of two drivers starting in the 30s. That was Kyle Larson and Eric Almarola. And crazy enough, they both ended up actually, like I said, having crashes, but they completed enough laps and started far enough back. Uh, and and avoided the early crashes, at least, that they still ended up in the winning lineup. Almirola going from 37th to 11th uh, and getting a, a small bit of dominator points. And Kyle Larson going from 38th to 19th, picking up 47 DraftKings points. Uh, so that was those were the two drivers starting in the 30s. After that, we had no drivers starting in the 20s in the winning lineup. No drivers starting in the back half of the teens in the winning lineup. I mean, just absolutely a crazy winning lineup. Then from there forward, uh, the other four drivers were Austin Dillon, who, of course, won the race. He started 14th. Ryan Newman started 13th, finished 8th, literally only gained five places. You almost never see a restrictor plate race with a full 40-car field where a driver starts that far forward and only gains a couple spots. 
that he ends up in the winning lineup, but it just so happens Ryan Newman ended up in the winning lineup 13th to 8th. Blaney started third. We know he talked about his dominance there, finished seventh, got 65 DraftKings points. And then Denny Hamlin started second, finished third, uh, and picked up 22 laps led and eight fastest laps. So just enough, I guess, to kind of put him over the edge there in terms of being in the winning lineup. That said, uh, the winning lineup was nowhere close to the optimal lineup. The optimal lineup still had, I think it was David Gilliland who started back in the 30s, um, and Kyle Larson was not in the winning line, uh, the optimal lineup, I should say. But the optimal lineup had all drivers scoring over 50 DraftKings points. Um, it was just obviously a lineup that didn't get used because it was very unusual as well. It had Paul Menard in it. Um, Menard started 16th and finished, I think it was like fifth, uh, sixth, I should say. So, you know, that's better than Ryan Newman. Menard scored 53.75 points, whereas Ryan Newman only scored 45. I talked about uh, David Gilliland. Um, you know, he would have scored over 50 points. He had 56.5 points. He didn't end up in the winning lineup. And then um, there was one other driver. I can't remember who. But the, but the idea is we had three drivers in this winning lineup that scored under 50 DraftKings points. And there were four or five other drivers that scored over 50 DraftKings points that didn't end up in the winning lineup that started further back. Michael McDowell had 53 DraftKings points, but he wouldn't have been in the winning lineup. I just can't uh, right now figure out who it was that the third driver that would have been in the lineup. But that said, it's the winning optimal lineup still would have been unusual in that it would have been two drivers in the 30s and four drivers starting inside the top 20. So just a really, really unusual construction like I said with Blaney, don't put too much weight into this kind of a roster construction winning. This is something you and I talked about, Matt, on the pod. Is there a potential scenario where all the chalk in the back gets wiped out and drivers starting further forward end up winning? I thought it might happen with drivers in the 20s. Turns out all the drivers in the 20s also got wiped out. So you suggested possibly the teens. You were the one who hit the nail on the head here. Bam. Yeah, that's. I mean, people obviously listen to the show to hear what I have to say, so uh, it's good that I could contribute this early in the season. Uh, okay, enough of uh, of Daytona. We're going to talk about Atlanta, but before that, I need to remind everyone that you can get a 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content, and your subscription supports the pod. Nickleby. Let's uh let's talk about Atlanta. So Atlanta Motor Speedway is a one and a half mile quad oval. It has the old surface, high tire wear. What kind of racing should we expect to see this weekend? I don't know if I've heard Nickelby yet. I've heard Nickelodeus. Uh, you may have even said some other nickel ones, but Nickelby's a new one. I like it. Right. But uh, <laughs> Atlanta, yeah, high tire wear. Uh, it's got a very old track surface. The drivers love it because they love having to, to really race the car, deal with tire wear instead of, you know, these other cookie cutter tracks that have new surfaces and every car handles smoothly and there's nothing that really separates these cars. Well, things get separated here at Atlanta because of the tire wear. However, uh, what we've noticed in recent years is there aren't as many cautions because, especially if have gone down to these lower downforce packages, uh, the, the drivers are already on eggshells with the lower downforce. And then they're also on eggshells with the, the high tire wear. So they're not on the ragged edge in terms of aerodynamics, where just barely going over the edge will make the car snap around. Uh, instead, like I said, because they're on eggshells, they, they tend to drive a little bit safer uh, in terms of being on the ragged edge and things like that. So we don't see, we haven't seen as many cautions in the recent years at the high tire wear tracks, Atlanta, Auto Club Speedway, for example, for actual like crashes, like multi-car crashes or just cars spinning out. We do see some uh, occasional cautions for, you know, obviously blowing a tire, 
But uh, by and large, we have seen fewer cautions recently at Atlanta and Auto Club than we've seen at other mile-and-a-half tracks just because they're less on the aerodynamic ragged edge there uh, and more on kind of like a, a grip edge. And, and so that, that makes them actually be on a little bit on eggshells. They don't go as fast as, as possible, whereas you know if you're going really fast, then aerodynamics matter a lot more and it's a lot easier for the car to get away from you that way. So that said, we will see comers and goers based off of tire wear. We will see a little more randomness in terms of the fastest laps. They get spread out a little bit more because you know, obviously you put two or three laps on the tires and then all of a sudden you're going three laps, three seconds slower per lap versus somebody who has brand new tires. Uh, you're going to see a lot of spread in the fastest laps. I remember one year, like Brian Scott, who basically wrecked every race, um, you know, came in and had a off-sequence stop probably because he spun out and ended up having like 40 fastest laps just because he was off-sequence from everybody. So every time he came in for new tires, everybody else was on old tires. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's definitely a race where we'll see a little bit of spread in fastest laps. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it is your typical mile and a half. Strategy will come into play, but not like overly much so. We'll see, you know, a pit stop in each segment, for example. And uh, I think one of the other keys to look at will, of course, be how do the Chevys perform and what happens with pit stops, especially with the new pit rules with only five crew members over the wall instead of six. But uh, by and large, I don't think we'll see too many cautions at Atlanta. It does tend to be a little bit more unpredictable, though, because of the tire wear situation. All right. Well, to uh, get kind of an early week jump on things, uh, let's look at some of the key statistics that uh, you are using to evaluate or to gauge driver performance in advance of Atlanta. Yeah, so I did something a little different with my Atlanta model this year, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we now have three years of data at Atlanta with the early season race. So pre prior to that, for several years, Atlanta was in the spring, um, later in the season, and uh I think it was one like the second race before uh, the playoffs started. Well, now it's the second race of the season in the fall, so a little bit different in terms of possibly like average weather. The other thing is those these three races, 2017, 16, and 15, are all of course as the surface is a lot older, and also it, 2015 is when they really started reducing the downforce on the cars, and they reduced even more in 16. So it's all with the lower downforce portion of the Gen 6 car, which started in 2013. So I think it makes sense to build my model based off of these three races. It still gives us plenty of data points to work with. Uh, and so building my model off of those three races throws out something super, super interesting. I thought, you know, going into building the model and looking at it and analyzing it, we'd be relying a lot on last year's performance because uh, we're so new into the season. You know, what has the driver done last year would be one of the bigger factors. Turns out it is one of the very minor factors into the model. If you use like the last half of last year, um, quality pass percentage or driver rating, they're almost interchangeable here for Atlanta. Uh, it, it makes up the least important factor in my model, but it is still a tiny bit of a factor. The other factors in my model are absolutely practice, and we don't know practice right now, so we can't really talk about that, both long run and short run, which makes sense with high tire wear, a short and long run. Um, and then the absolutely number one most important thing is what have you done at Atlanta, which I thought was interesting because it's it's not taking into account uh, you know the track type being like the large ovals, so pulling in you know Kansas and Kentucky and Charlotte and all these other tracks. It's mostly just what have you done in Atlanta. So dominance at Atlanta, both in fastest laps and laps led showed up. 
and quality pass percentage at Atlanta, which highly correlates with driver rating. Um, you can flip either one of those, uh, and it really doesn't matter at Atlanta. The, but the quality pass percentage at Atlanta, a uh, driver's history there, um, matters a lot. I will say there is some track type, but it's it's your average finishing position at the track type last year. That de- did get pulled in um, as well, but not as important as really just like Atlanta dominance and, and also just how you've performed in general at Atlanta with the quality pass percentage and driver rating. That's that's really interesting there. I, I have a follow-up question about the track history. Um, I mean, Atlanta, obviously, it, it's different because of the old surface and the tire wear. So it's different than some of the uh, mile-and-a-half quad ovals that are out there. But it, it still doesn't seem uh, hugely, like significantly different. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Is there a particular reason why you think track history at Atlanta is more important than uh, that metric normally is for some of the other mile and a half quad ovals. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think the, the difference is just in how you're able to attack the track. Uh, obviously you have to be a little bit less aggressive when there's such a high amount of tire wear. Um, you can't just burn off your equipment right off the bat. So uh, I'll, I'll obviously throw out a name here a little bit early, but one driver we might think about avoiding would be Kyle Larson, who really aggressive driver, but then can wear out his tires really quickly. And a lot of the other tracks with his lower tire wear, the ability to attack the track like this, not as much of a hindrance. So his driver rating at Atlanta, not very good, only 80, whereas uh, you, know, you normally want to be for an elite driver above 100 at a particular track or just in general on average over the course of the season. So Kyle Larson is sub-average, not sub-average, sub-elite at Atlanta, whereas we'd be playing him at most other tracks. That said, obviously, there's a range of outcomes. It's not like he can't finish very high, but it's probably unlikely he'll dominate Atlanta, probably unlikely he'll win just because of the fact that uh, you know he tends to be more aggressive uh, at Atlanta than a lot of other drivers. I mean, it's it's. I think it's really comes down to a driving style type thing where a lot of these drivers who are super aggressive right from the get go tend to maybe not be uh, as good on their tires and, and, and as good on their equipment as they should be. That's interesting. Uh, so obviously this is this is the midweek show, baby. So we're recording this on Tuesday. We don't have salaries yet. We don't have odds to work with yet. Uh, but which drivers? do you think currently fit the bill in terms of the key stats that you were looking at uh, the guys that potentially could offer value uh, that we should be eyeing? Yeah. So just looking at guys who might win the race uh, to start off here, the the first and foremost name that comes up with track history is Kevin Harvick. Uh, if you look at eight race, the last eight races, Atlanta, or you just look at the races since 2015 in that window I've been talking about, either window, he is the dominant performer there at Atlanta. Over the last three, a 132.3 driver rating, highest average finish at 5.6666666, you know, repeating, and uh, the, absolutely the most dominator points 55 percent of the laps led on average and 16 percent of the fastest laps on average which is really high for you know a a track where fastest laps tend to be spread out so he should be the number one guy we look for uh the interesting name is number two if we just look at the last three years is jimmy johnson uh 108 driver rating which is second best average finish of 7.0 which isn't second best but is right up there in the top couple um and uh then you know his dominator percentage is very good as well. He always seems to get the strategy game right there at the end, Chad Knauss, with being able to make the right call on tires and when to come in for that last stop uh, really seems to help. So he hasn't qualified very, very well, very well. Average qualifying position of 
six repeating again uh, for Jimmy Johnson over the last three Atlanta races, but an average finish of seventh means he has the second most DraftKings points on average at Atlanta in those last three races other than Kevin Harvick. I also think there could be a nice advantage to playing Jimmy Johnson because if people look at last year, we do know he struggled last year, but this is a track where he's less likely to crash at than a lot of the other tracks where he had, you know, he had some crash issues last year. So I think Jimmy Johnson, a very interesting name who may be a little underpriced when salaries come out, uh, maybe a little longer odds than we'd expect, but he is Jimmy Johnson. So a lot of times he does get credit just for his long-term history. Uh, another name, Joey Logano. Uh, obviously struggled last year, very much so, especially after the issue with the win at Richmond where it got encumbered because of the illegal rear-end suspension and so forth. So if people discount him, if his price is discounted based off the fact that he absolutely stunk after like the 10th race last year, uh, I think he missed out on the playoffs. I think he could go underpriced, maybe a little bit longer odds as well in terms of winning the race. So Joey Logano, 107.4 driver rating is third best, uh, fourth best, I should say. Third best was Martin Truex Jr., but we all expect him to be priced very high there with Truex um, and, and possibly very short odds as well to win. So Joey Logano, 107.4 driver rating, uh, has been the third most dominant driver in terms of if you combine laps led and fastest laps at Atlanta as well. Average finish 7.3 over the last three Atlanta races. Okay, uh, any drivers kind of in the middle or uh, towards the back of the NASCAR pack uh, who have some good track history that you think we should be aware of? Yeah, the number one name that jumps out jumps out to me, uh, who I think could actually be of really good value this weekend, maybe not to win, um, although I, I think there may be some small amount of value to win depending on what the odds end up being, but that's Ryan Newman. He is He's had a driver rating of... N- 89.2 over the last three Atlanta races, which is good for eighth best. Um, and some of it is actually even a little bit underrated because he had two really late race crashes that weren't his fault in the past couple of years. So at Atlanta, so, uh, you know, an 89.2 driver rating, an average running position of 9.3, but his finish average has been 23 over those last three Atlanta races because of some of that bad luck. So uh, Ryan Newman is a guy that could absolutely provide some value here at Atlanta. And I do like to tend to like the experienced drivers just because they, they tend to know how to manage their tires a little bit more. Um, but it really is kind of more of a driving style thing. And, and Ryan Newman, not nearly as aggressive as he used to be in his younger years, especially since he's uh, kind of moved over to that Richard Childress stable there. Uh, one other name that I think could uh, provide some value deeper down in the field. Well, I'll give two names. One is, is Ricky Stenhouse Jr., uh, 78.3 driver rating Atlanta, average running position of 15. Not really a threat to win, but could be a good DraftKings value depending on what he's priced, as well as his teammate Trevor Bain, um, but uh, Bain maybe less so. And then finally, the driver deeper in the field that I think could provide some value is in that Joe Dirt cheap tier. My favorite probably of the approximate Joe Dirt cheap tier would be David Reagan. Uh, he has the best driver rating among the Joe Dirt cheap, and it's not even really close uh, with the rest of the Joe Dirt cheap tier. His is 56.3. Um, average finish 24.3. So, you know, if he qualifies back in that thirties range there, uh, I'd expect him to pick up several spots from place differential should be around six K or less, uh, when pricing comes out. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, so even for some of those deeper guys, if they don't have great odds to win, uh, they could still end up providing some value, uh, in the head to head props that uh, often get posted on Sunday mornings. Uh, so, you know, obviously something to think about there. You had teased earlier, uh, one driver maybe to avoid based off of his track history. Who are some other guys you're looking to avoid? 
Yeah, so obviously I said um, you know, Kyle Larson would be a name to avoid there. Another major, major name that we might want to consider avoiding is Kyle Busch, the other Kyle there. His average driver rating over the last three Atlanta races is basically the same as Kyle Larson's, just a notch ahead at 82.8. He does have a decent average finish, nine and a half, but like you want that average finish to be higher for a guy who could contend for wins. You know, drivers that can contend for wins are drivers that rack up dominator points. Kyle Busch has only led 0.3% of the laps on average the last three years, so essentially no laps led for Kyle Busch. It probably came on some kind of sequence thing, you know, green flag pit stop sequence thing or something like that. So um, Kyle Busch is a name I would avoid alongside Kyle Larson. I think those two names um, are, are interesting because they were both very dominant last year. Uh, they were you know, two of the top four drivers, I would say, maybe top five uh, overall over the course of the season for Larson. You know, I think in the regular season, he was probably the third best driver in the playoffs. He's had a lot of struggles, might have dropped him below Harvick and Keselowski for me. But uh, over the course of the season, you know, two top five drivers here really struggle in Atlanta. Um, average finishing position, 18 for Larson. You know, these average running positions aren't even very good for them. 15 and a half for Larson, 14 for Kyle Busch. So two names I would definitely avoid. Also, I think Martin Truex Jr., kind of an interesting fade. We know he was the dominant car last year, what he did on these mile and a halfs. Uh, but Atlanta hasn't been his best mile and a half. He still has led some laps here, 3.4% laps led on average, 4% fastest laps on average, but it pales in comparison to Harvick and Johnson and Logano, uh, and even the laps led that Kurt Busch has had, for example. So um, if Martin Truex Jr. is priced number one overall and isn't really in a spot to dominate based off of qualifying, uh, probably a pretty easy fade for me, and I think based off his, you know, his expected odds to win, probably not the smartest bet in Vegas as well. So you mentioned before digging into the model that uh, because this race is so early in the season, you were expecting kind of overall 2017 performance to be uh, something that would be relied upon, but uh, that the model doesn't rely on it much. Uh, how do you think DFS players should treat 2017 performance when they are thinking about Atlanta and making their DFS lineups? Um, I wouldn't say it should be a tiebreaker, but I, I think it you know should be maybe just a bit more than a tiebreaker. I wouldn't rely on it so much. I mean, this is a great way, race to get away from, like I said, Martin Truex Jr., a uh, guy who's dominated all the time, if you can. Get on Joey Logano, who had some struggles last year. Get on you know, maybe a guy like Ryan Newman, who uh, probably gets underrated at a track here like Atlanta, be a little different from the field. And it's so early in the season. There's a lot of uncertainty about what will happen with the Chevys. Will the, the Fords be the worst manufacturer? Will the Chevys hit or miss right off the bat? So many things we don't know that, uh, you know, drivers on new teams like we talked about with Al Marola or Casey Kane or all these different things, that there's so much uncertainty that the model is is in general not super strong in Atlanta because of the tire wear, because of the way things shake up at the end with strategy. And then now you add the uncertainty from it moving to the beginning of the season. Uh, I think this will be a great way to get away from a lot of last year's stuff. That said, don't completely throw it away. I mean, the better teams are still the better teams. The better drivers are still the better drivers. But uh, don't overweight last year's performance too much. I think we you know, might see some unexpected things here. I, I wouldn't say unexpected, but maybe on the, the range of outcome side of things where uh, you know, it tends to be more towards ceilings and floors – than normal uh, Daytona. It was interesting. If you in, I have to give a hat tip to one of our uh, one of our you know subscribers and Twitter readers, he went back and looked at the 
the driver sim scores app and looked at how many drivers fell outside the top 25% and bottom 25% expected outcomes. And I should say 15%, uh, bottom and top 15% expected outcomes. And it was 19 of the 36 drivers that uh, we had data for because there was a few rookies that you can't throw in the sim scores and stuff. But, uh, it, yeah, way more than normal with all the mayhem at Daytona and all the chalk getting taken out and things like that. I think we could see something maybe similar at Atlanta, not obviously completely the same, but I, I do think we could see a little bit more uncertainty at Atlanta just because if people are looking at last year's stuff too much, that's a great way to take advantage of it. Okay. It is a brave new world with the midweek show. Uh, so obviously this is a new piece of content we're doing. We're going to have the the normal show on Friday. Uh, you're going to have a road of his live show. Obviously the apps are going to be updated. There are going to be articles at, uh, at road of and then the one at the action network, Nick talk about the NASCAR content coming out this week. Yeah. So, uh, because of the, you know, the new article coming out Sunday morning, I think that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, other than that, things will be kind of business as usual. The article will come out after final practice, uh, so, you know, if we if we kind of look at the schedule this weekend, final practice is it ends at about 1.20 p.m. on uh, Saturday, and that's Eastern time. So after that, I'll, I'll have all the practice data. We'll have the qualifying data, of course. I'll be able to build the model, get the article out on Saturday. Uh, then Saturday night, of course, I'll work on the article for, for Sunday morning for the betting article at Action Network. Uh, we will have Rotoviz live, so the race is at 2 p.m. Eastern. 11 a.m. Pacific. Normally we've done it uh, two hours before. I'm thinking maybe do it three hours before. Uh, would like your listeners' feedback there. Should I do it two hours before the race or three hours before the race? Road of his live. Um, so the race again, 2 p.m. Eastern time. That means should I do it at noon Eastern time or 11 a.m. Eastern time? Let me know. I'll be happy to do either one. But definitely looking forward to your guys' feedback. So you know, no Friday night road of his live like we did for the Daytona 500 because of the special week with the duels and everything back to the normal schedule where we're doing it before lineup lock uh, a couple hours before lineup locks. So let me know if you want it two hours or three hours before for road of his live. All right. That is going to do it for the first ever midweek NASCAR edition of on the daily for Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc. I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. 
relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.